You may be seated. Uh, welcome once again, everyone, uh, to Redemption Hill Church. Again, as some of you know, this is a church plant. We're just getting started, <laughs> figuring things out, and it's a, good, it's a sweet place to be, to be honest with you. It's a sweet place to be. Um, as I prayed, and some of you may have known through emails, uh, we're beginning a sermon series on the book of Galatians. And I'm really excited. There's going to be at least 14 sermons on the book of Galatians, minimum. Uh, what I'm finding is as I kind of study and work through, I want to keep chopping things up. So I'm going to be wise in that. But that's what you can expect. And going through the book of Galatians is also a reminder for me to tell you why we value preaching through books of the Bible. And there are several reasons here. Here are just a few. The reason why I love preaching through books of the Bible is that you can't miss the difficult topics. I'm not trying to knock those who do topical sermons. Sometimes we do that here, that's for sure. Um, but when we preach through books of the Bible, you're, you're faced to preach all of God's word. You can't really cherry pick, and I, and I appreciate that. And so when we get into Galatians, we will get into some thorny issues, some thorny questions, and we will wrestle with that. We will wrestle with God's word. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why I love preaching through books of the Bible. And there'll be more books of the Bible we will preach through by the end of this year. Um, I should also mention this before I get into the message. Um, there, we did a sermon series on beliefs and distinctives. We, it was kind of topical, but it was exegetical preaching still. Uh, there's two more messages that I did not preach because I wanted to begin Galatians in the new year that I will get to throughout 2019. I'll just weave them in and can, you know, probably give a break through another sermon series. Uh, the first is what we believe about the Bible, right? We throw around words like inspired, inerrancy, um, sufficiency, etc. Well, why is that? I want to be able to explain those terms and show you from the scriptures why we believe the Bible is those terms. Um, and we'll get to that message. And the other message, and um, Sarah's um, word this morning uh, leads into that, we will preach on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a general work of the Holy Spirit, and there's a specific work of the Holy Spirit. And I think the Bible is really clear about what that is, and we want to wrestle with that as well. So just a, a heads up on that Beliefs and Distinctives series. We're going to get back to those two messages, and I'll weave those in. As it pertains to today, this sermon will serve as a general introduction to the book of Galatians, and we will also look at the first five verses in this letter. Today's sermon, it's like, it's like setting the table before you eat. You want to get things kind of laid down. You can't you can't eat your meal without your fork and your spoon and your knife, etc. And so we're kind of setting the table for the book of Galatians. So with no further delay, let's dive in and see what God has for us this morning. Here, here is God's word. Galatians 1, verse 1 through verse 5. If you don't have your Bible, no problem. It'll be on the screen right behind me. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. And I, I just want to read verses 6 and 7. This is going to help you with some context of where Paul's headed throughout the rest of the letter. Paul continues, And I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you ever want to know what a book is all about, not just the Bible, pick a novel, right? You oftentimes can figure out what the book is about by just simply reading the introduction and conclusion. I, I found my wife doing that. And I'm like, what are you doing? You get, don't you read that from like cover to cover? Well, she's wiser than me. And she wants to know if it's actually going to be a good book. So she'll look at the introduction, read it, and then the conclusion. And then she'll say, okay, it's a good book, or it's not a good book. Uh, Paul's introduction to the churches in this region of Galatia, now, Galatia is a, a region, think Iowa, and they got a bunch of cities. That's what's going on here. Uh, Paul's introduction is not much different. There, there's trouble brewing, and Paul needs to step in. I suppose the question Paul ultimately needs to answer for the churches is this. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Now, we often ask the question, within the context of evangelism, uh, when we think about our non-Christian friends or family, right? What does it mean to be saved? That's kind of the context that we think out of it. But for the next few months, the question, what does it mean to be saved, is going to be asked within the context of the local church. In other words, I'm asking, to the, I'm asking the question to the person who faithfully comes to church, gives to the church, and professes Jesus Christ as, as Lord. Now, when I wrote that, I'm like, man, that seems a little bit antagonistic, right? To ask the question to the church, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean for you to be saved? But that is what Paul does in the book of Galatians. Just like the 21st century, in the first century, you can find leaders in churches proclaiming the name of Christ without teaching the true doctrines of Christ. Therefore, Paul needs to explain that salvation is, dependent up, is not dependent upon a person's works. The problem that Paul needs to correct within the churches in Galatia is that they have strayed from the one true gospel. Galatians is a book that was written specifically to counter legalism and to address the centrality of grace in the church. And legalism is one threat that regularly reemerges in different forms from generation to generation. The first century had their version of legalism, and the 21st century has, we have our version of legalism. It's just as Paul addressed the churches in the first century, he, God's word is addressing us this morning. So one of the reasons why I chose Paul's letter to the Galatians as the first book of the Bible to preach through from beginning to end in this church plant is because the gospel of grace is the theme woven from beginning to end. That's how you combat legalism. That's how Paul combats legalism. Talk about grace. Talk about the grace of the gospel. Paul 
writes to the churches in Galatia because he needs to provide clarity about the nature of the gospel. A different gospel was being preached, which really was not a gospel at all. As a consequence, there are problems. Here's how one commentator uh, provocatively states the Galatian problem. I found it provocative. Galatians is a letter for recovering Pharisees. After that first sentence, I'm like, stop. Who, me? The Pharisees who lived during and after the time of Christ were very religious. They were regular in worship, orthodox in their theology, and moral in their conduct. Yet something was missing. Although God was in their minds and in their actions, he was not in their hearts. Therefore, their religion was little more than hypocrisy. Now, if I'm honest with myself, which I, I tried to be as I prepared this message, I too can act like a Pharisee. I can do the Christian dance. Got the Christian lingo down by now. I've been a Christian for about 15 years. I know what to say, how to say it, whom to say it to, whom not to say it to, right? I can preach from this pulpit. I can pump my head with knowledge, but yet the real question is of the heart. In order to combat the pharisaical life, Paul goes back to the basics. There's nothing a person can do to add to their justification before God. A person standing before God is based upon grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. There's nothing Sean Powers can do to add to God's justifying work. The instant you or I think we can add to the grace of the gospel is the moment we have forgotten the gospel altogether. God's grace to save is the power of God to regenerate a cold, dead heart. A cold, dead heart cannot make itself alive. And after a person is utterly transformed by the power and grace of God through the gospel, your good works do not add to your justification, but are a response to the grace of God at work in your life. The moment, the moment we remove grace from the gospel is the moment Christianity becomes like every other religion. Works-based and self-sufficient. I recently read a blog about the unique nature of Christianity. Um, basically, there was this, the context is a kind of seminary setting with a bunch of professors and thinkers getting together. Here's a small excerpt. It involves C.S. Lewis. During a British conference on comparative religions, uh, basically a conference on world religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to Christian faith. So what makes Christians so different? What makes Christianity different from everything else? They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, well, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. True. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from the death. True. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And only a British accent can do this. What's the rumpus about? 
he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. It's the grace of God to save and the grace of God to sustain and continue to transform us that makes Christianity different. And it's the message of grace that Paul delivered to the churches throughout the Mediterranean region in the first century. We know from the book of Acts that Paul traveled through many cities in southern Galatia, cities such as Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. When you read through the book of Acts, you're going to bump into these names in these cities. And it's easy to conjecture from Paul's writings to the Galatians and from the book of Acts that Paul played a major part in planting these churches. However, when Paul left the Galatian region, the leadership and teaching void was filled with unfaithful gospel preachers. They were individuals who were teaching a different gospel. They were teaching a gospel that said they needed Jesus plus the Old Testament law, in particular circumcision. Hence the tension apparent throughout the letter. That's why I read verses 6 and 7. You kind of hear that tension building in Paul's words. To get straight to Paul's point, he is going to say there is only one gospel. Anything else being taught is an imitation gospel. It's an imposter. And one of the corrections Paul makes in Galatians is that the gospel is a message of freedom founded upon the unmerited grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's about freedom from the Old Testament law. It's about freedom from sin. It's about freedom from the burden of death. It's about freedom from unbiblical additions that pastors, teachers, and churches can add to the gospel. And it's freedom only found in Jesus. Here's a, here's a helpful example of what Paul was preaching against in Galatians. I found it helpful. Imagine for a moment I give you a glass of water. If you want to get fancy on it, we can do like the spring water, you know, with, with like the glass bottles these days. I give it to you and I say, drink it. And we know that drinking water is essential for our living. Now imagine I just put one drop of poison in the water. Is that good for you? Of course not. The water's been contaminated. A glass of water with just one drop of poison could kill you. And so this is what Paul is up against. There were people teaching gospel truths. They were preaching in the name of Jesus. Words like grace and faith were getting thrown around in sermons. But all that was being contaminated by other poisonous teachings that were being added to the gospel. And so in many respects, our journey through the book of Galatians is about, is about getting to the heart of the gospel. It's about fighting against the pharisaical, pharisaical life that we all can be prone to do for ourselves and expect from others. So one of my prayers over the next several months is that we will allow the gospel of grace to shape this church, shape our lives, shape our families. Then as a result, we live out the gospel as an expression of our deep love and devotion to God. And concerning the beginning of our journey through the book of Galatians, we read in verses 1 to 5 that the gospel of grace, it saves us from the world while, while not taking us out of the world 
And this is according to God's eternal will. That's where, that's where Paul begins as he walks us through the gospel of grace. In addition to this declaration, we read in verse 4, Paul needs to defend his apostolic status so that the gospel message isn't undermined. The false teachers throughout Galatia knew that in order for their message to succeed, they needed to plant lies about Paul's apostolic authority into the minds of the churches. I found that interesting. How do we change the message? You go after the man. Let me play this out for you in a, perhaps a contemporary church world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit I've seen this and I've got friends been a part of this. You have a pastor faithfully teaching and preaching the gospel. The pastor notices that there is a subculture in the church adding to the gospel. They're adding to the gospel, oftentimes in our, in our context, with their preferences. You know, people demand that the worship needs to look a particular way. The people in the church need to look a particular way. The carpet needs to be burgundy, white, or gray, or whatever. And then the pastor tries to correct the fraction in the church, perpetuating their preferences. And you know what? Often happens, happens. He gets run out. There were people in the Galatian churches, Judaizers in particular, who were trying to run the teachings of Paul out of the church by discrediting Paul. Therefore, right out of the gate, in verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. So I want you to see the intentionality of Paul's first line in this letter to the churches. His status as an apostle was not put upon him by a council of men. A bunch of first century dudes didn't come together in funky robes and hats to say, yeah, Paul, that guy who used to persecute the church, let's pick that guy to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. That didn't happen. The apostle Peter, the great apostle Peter who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, didn't anoint Paul with a special title of apostle. We know that it was Jesus who came to Paul, saved him on the road to Emmaus, and then commissioned him to be an apostle to the nations. You can read about Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Jesus says in Acts 9 that Paul is his chosen instrument. Now, all this might seem like Paul is being a bit defensive about his reputation, right? They're talking bad about me. I need to defend myself. But this isn't about Paul's reputation for two reasons. First, if the unadulterated message of the gospel is at stake, it is okay for Paul to set the apostolic record straight. It's okay. It's necessary. Paul wants to make sure, not that he's undermined, but that the gospel isn't undermined. Second, and this reason has additional contemporary significance, Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired words at the time were circulating as individual letters. So the Ephesian church gets a letter from Paul, they hand it on to Laodicea. Laodicea hands it on to some churches in Galatia, etc. They're all circulating. And they have equal weight 
to the rest of the Bible. For instance, the words of Jesus in the Bible have equal weight to the words of Paul in the Bible. I say this because it's common to hear people say this. I just want to do whatever Jesus says in the Bible. I just want to read the red letters of your Bible, right? I got a red letter Bible. The implication being that there are parts of the Bible no longer necessary. If someone says that all they care about are the words of Jesus and they are dismissing the inspiration and authority of all the scriptures, believing in the God of the Bible is an all or nothing deal. If you want the teachings of Jesus, you get the teachings of Paul. The Bible isn't an a la carte line where you get to pick and choose whatever you want. A little mashed potatoes, I don't want any corn. More of a beef guy, not a turkey guy. And the false teachers in Galatia wanted the words of Paul to be entirely dismissed. So Paul, Paul's apostolic defense is necessary in order to preserve the one true gospel and the authority of his epistles. Another way Paul builds up his argument as an authority is when he says that his ministry came from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. It's easy to miss this nuance in the text in Paul's introduction. But Paul is highlighting the divinity of Jesus Christ by ordering the name of Jesus before the Father. You go to the rest of his epistles, it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in verse 3, it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 1, flips it around. The implication, the message of Paul is of divine nature. His message comes straight from God and not from man. The Son of God gave Paul the message of the gospel grace and commissioned Paul to proclaim the message of gospel grace. Paul uh, bookends his letters with exclamations of grace. In verse 3, we read of the customary Christian greeting in Paul's letters, grace to you, peace from God our Father. Again, that's the right ordering. That's the normal ordering, excuse me, that we read in most of his epistles. Peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul ends his letter highlighting grace. Last verse of Galatians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Here's the message of grace that you'll hear more about in the weeks ahead. God's love and pleasure for you is not dependent upon you. God's love and pleasure for you is completely dependent upon God choosing you and God's constant pursuit of you. This is the message of grace. The message of grace is not if I just try harder, then somehow God will love me more. If I just pray more, read more, go to church more, then God will somehow like me more. Listen, the moment you insert your works into the equation, you abandon the gospel of free grace. And when you abandon the gospel of free grace, you begin to abandon God. Christian, your justification, the moment you were saved, and the Holy Spirit broke in at that moment, it is all 100, 100% dependent upon Christ. Anything less is not the gospel. We could spend all day on this point. We really could, but guess what? We get months. For now, here one more point about the free grace of the gospel. 
from the perspective of many evangelical Protestants, it's easy to look at churches with more of a liturgical tradition, say Catholic, I grew up Catholic, and see a works-based salvation, right? You do these things to be reconciled to God. You do these things to get to heaven. But oh, how many times I've seen evangelical Protestant churches that preach the gospel only to add their own rules and restrictions to the gospel. And these rules and restrictions do not come from the Bible. I'm not talking about when the Bible gives a command. These rules and restrictions, these unbiblical ones, create what I call a, a country club culture. I used to work in a country club, that's why that sticks in my mind, right? In this club, everyone looks the same, acts the same, lives in the same way, but when one person in the club no longer looks like the rest, there's the door. No longer a part of this club. No grace. There's a bunch of people trying to protect their little club. But listen, I've been around long enough to know that these churches exist. I've counseled enough people to know the negative effects that a legalistic church can have on a person. In this church, Redemption Hill Church, we need to strive, to strive to be a community of grace because if we've been saved by God's grace. The free grace that saves is the free grace that also sustains, and we must be a community saturated by grace. So is there a place for works in our justification? No. Is there a place of works in our sanctification? Absolutely. But our works are still completely depend upon the grace of God. Tom Schreiner, a theologian, professor, says this, God's grace in Paul must not be limited to unmerited favor, but also refers to God's transformative power. To be transformed by the grace of the gospel means to be someone completely different. You know, while I was writing this sermon, I couldn't help but reflect on the transformative power of the gospel in my own life, right? Uh, the change that took place in my early 20s was really obvious. Uh, I was living a life of, of sex, drugs, and excessive drinking. After I was saved, God was becoming the center of my life. Even my family was like, you're not the same dude. What happened? My wife, on the other hand, was saved at a much younger age. By God's grace, God spared her for many of my experiences. Nonetheless, the miracle that took place in my heart also took place in her heart. How do I know? She continues to cling to the gospel of free grace. The grace that saves is the same grace that sustains, transforms, and sanctifies God's people. You know, let us be a church we give the Holy Spirit more credit about what he is doing in ourselves and in the people around us because his grace is at work. In verse four, we see the heart of today's message and the heart of the gospel of free grace. What we read in verse four is that we will be preserved from generation to generation. The message of Christ will be preserved from generation to generation until Jesus comes back. It says Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It is remarkable that we can have the free gift of grace precisely because Christ freely gave himself to die for our sins. Jesus could have freely taken, him down, taken himself down from the cross. You ever think about that? 
He had that power. But he willingly kept himself on the cross out of love. And from his love flows his grace. What this means is that grace that saves, the grace that saves is not cheap grace. It is costly grace. Cheap grace is when a person wants salvation from God, but they don't want the implications of embracing Jesus as their Lord. Costly grace acknowledges the power and grace of God to save and the power and grace of God to change. Costly grace does not take for granted the atoning death of Jesus, but runs toward the cross. Costly grace causes us to say no to sin and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel for the glory of God. Costly grace causes us to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Costly grace tells us to lay down everything we have and everything we desire for Jesus Christ and for his church. Costly grace tells us that we are broken and needy and therefore need more of Jesus every single day. And because we know of our own brokenness and need for Jesus, costly grace also causes us to move toward others who are likewise broken and needy. It's one thing to live in a way where you want more of God's grace. That's good. Pray that. Expect that. We also need to move toward others in the grace that God has given us. There's no room in the kingdom of God for cheap grace. Only the blood-atoning, rescue-saving plan of God shows us the high and costly price for grace. God the Father gave his one and only Son for our sins. What an exchange. What costly grace. The book of Galatians is going to keep us on the path of costly grace. In addition to receiving forgiveness from our sins because of costly grace, Grace, the death of Christ delivers us from the present and evil age, it says in verse 4. One commentator says that deliverance is the keynote of this epistle. The gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from the state of bondage. I like that. The word, the verb deliver in verse 4 reflects back to the Old Testament when God rescued Israel, for example, God delivered or rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt and from slavery. You might recall, God's people were being persecuted and lived in slavery, and God, through Moses and Aaron, rescued them from their persecutors. God's people were led out of Egypt and eventually made it to the promised land. So, Paul makes it clear in verse 4, God continues to deliver and rescue his people from the present and evil age. Now, this does require some explanation. In the book of Exodus where this word deliver comes from. We read of how Moses led God's people out of physical Egypt, right? They were living in the land of Egypt. They were undergoing physical persecution. And now we read that when a person is justified and saved by God, he or she is delivered from this present evil age. And yet we know we live in a world where suffering exists, pain still persists. You personally experienced hardship and sorrow. So what do we make of this? Here are several points about what it means to be delivered from this evil age through the power of the cross. First, 
we are living in what many people call, many theologians call an already but not yet phase of the kingdom of God. Which means when Christ came at the first advent, when he was was born, a new work was being instituted by God, a, a work that would be done over time. What is this work? It's the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. The kingdom of God will be fully realized when all nations, tribes, and tongues have heard the gospel. Second, know that just because Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt does not mean they were delivered from all their hardship and from their suffering. This helps us to see that our deliverance is not a physical deliverance necessarily, and at least not yet. What God has always wanted his people to see is that faith in him removed the penalty of sin, but also empowers his people to live in a way that honors him. Our deliverance is first and foremost spiritual. We get so focused on the tangible and the physical. But our deliverance is first and foremost spiritual. Disciples of Jesus Christ have been delivered from the power of this present evil age. Satan no longer has a claim on your life. You are free from his power, which is why you're able to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Until Jesus comes back, we do toil, and we do fight the good fight of faith, knowing that God has already won the battle. And when Jesus comes back, we will be completely delivered from this evil age once and for all. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more toiling, no more need to fight. But in this already not yet kingdom of God, we need to learn not to rely on our strength, but to move toward and pray toward more God-sustaining grace. We need the grace of God to reveal more of Christ to our hearts. Here's one more point from verse four. The gospel of grace through the work of Jesus Christ is according to God's eternal will. From Galatians, if you're in Galatians and you turn to the next book in the Bible, you find Ephesians, where we read about Paul elaborating on God's eternal will to save. Here's just a few verses. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So let me get this straight. You were chosen by God before he breathed the universe in existence. Whew. That's amazing. It's mind-boggling, but amazing. Continuing on, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5 now, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you're having a hard day, read that passage, and you will see how much you're loved. You will see how much you're cherished. You will see how much God is devoted to you. The implications are numerous, but ponder this for a moment. It has always been a part of God the Father's will to send his son to die for you out of love for you. 
Father does not love us because the Son died for us. Rather, the Son died for us because the Father loves us. The cross has its origins in the Father's heart. What amazing grace. What a tremendous freedom we get to celebrate this morning. If you're here this morning and you feel that God's grace has been elusive, I want you to hear this. You're not a mistake. You were loved. And one of God's desires is for you to experience his love and grace in Christ. Yes, prayer, reading your Bible, and coming together as a gospel-saturated community are all means of God's grace, right? We want to pursue those and press into those. But in this moment right now, God wants you to know that you are loved and cherished, and you are not a mistake. He is at work in your life by grace. Receive that this morning. That is the outworking of the gospel in your life. You can rest in who God is and in his grace for you. You don't need to add your work to his justifying power. And finally, we we read in verse five, the work of Christ to forgive sins, to rescue his people in this present evil age, and all this leads to God's glory. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Just as the life and work of Christ gives glory to God, we also exist to bring God glory. Nothing less can do. When we embrace his grace and live in his grace, we give God glory by faith. And giving glory to God, and I'm just repeating myself here, it means we embrace costly grace and we live freely because of costly grace. What you believe and how you live out what you believe will give God glory. So we exist in this church to give God glory. It's the first line in our mission statement. We exist to glorify God. And we want to do that as we continue to mine the depths of the book of Galatians. And as we mine the depths of the book of Galatians, we want to continually be transformed by the grace of the gospel. Let's pray.